Today's reading is Galatians 1, 11 through 24. It can be found on page 1074 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our God of grace, as we come into this room, We hold things. We bring things in with us. We carry things. They might be experiences. They probably have emotions attached to them. They might be moods that we are in. They might be troubling thoughts. It could be a reaction of gratitude, could be a season of joy, could be a season of depression or grief. We sit before you right now, really believing that we are, that as I'm speaking right now, we are, I'm just voicing who we are, and it's, we're voicing that truly before someone who's listening. And in this time, our hope is that you confirm that sense in us, or that hope in us, that you are listening. You confirm it by letting us hear from you. In whatever way we need to hear from you, and you know better than us what we need. Because the truth is, all of us are more of a mess than we care to admit. And we may try to band-aid over that and put on nice clothes or a smile on our face. But underneath it, we have questions, anxiety, regret, burdens, failures, waywardness. And the reason a lot of us come here each week is because we know and we've been told and we believe that you meet messy 
people, you meet broken lives, that you come with a healing and restoring presence, not a vindictive presence. And so even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, your story in the Bible tells us we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And that's why the death and resurrection of Jesus are so important because it's where you displayed that for the world to see. So may we be met this morning with your grace as we explore your words and as we look for your spirit to come alive in our life and in this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what happened was President Snow captured PETA and took him in the Capitol and held him there and then put him through this process of conditioning and programming so that PETA would become someone who had this kind of secret inner programming to assassinate Katniss Everdeen. What am I talking about? Hunger Games. And uh, what is it, Mockingjay Part 2? I, you know... I, I hear you saying spoiler. I, I see the ears being covered. I'm sorry. I act, my bad. I actually... All right, so... But I didn't give away much of, of the ending. Okay, so we don't know how that all turns out. But PETA is a great candidate for this. It's, ge- it's a diabolical but genius plot because PETA is trusted in the inner circle of Katniss Everdeen. PETA will be welcomed in to her presence when they release him back. And uh, Katniss and the others will be compassionate and um, they'll, they'll believe in second chances for PETA. And they'll, and they'll, even if they realize he's been programmed to assassinate her, they'll believe that they can deprogram him. It's a genius it's the, he's the perfect candidate for this. Strategically perfect person for the job. We're talking about Paul in the book of Acts. Another strategically perfect person, in a sense, to switch sides in this time in the movement of Jesus, the Jesus people. Didn't even really have a name. It wasn't called Christianity yet. It wasn't the church. It was just kind of like one person refers to it as the way. Others refer to some of the people in one place as Christians for the first time. And in this moment, the church of Jesus, the people following him, spreading this gracious healing message, is a Jewish movement. It's around Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judea. It's in little Jewish pockets. Everyone, almost everyone to a last person who associates with the movement in the first five years or so is Jewish. The movement is poised. It's kind of filled up the the Jewish circles and it's kind of like those who have believed have accepted and then a whole bunch of the Jewish folks oppose it. It's poised now to break beyond the barriers of the synagogues and move out into the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world. And this guy, Paul, is the strategically perfect person to be 
to help that happen. His command of Judaism is flawless, as the text referred. He's a high-performing insider in the Jewish movement. His credentials couldn't be more secure. He's also, we find out and we see, before his conversion and after, we see that he's a, no matter what he's doing, he's going to be a clear leader. And then we have this other cool thing about him that's amazing for what he's going to be called to do is that he's, um, he's not just a cultural insider with the Jews. He actually grew up in a big city called Tarsus where you know, he would have been an incredible minority as a Jew. So he grew up going to the synagogue in a big city named Tarsus, and one of the clinchers is he grew up a Roman citizen. So he has fluency in the language, he has fluency in the customs, he's a, a world traveler. And, um, and then he has these two personality traits that come out as well that make him strategically perfect. He just seems to be, no matter what he's doing, pre-conversion, post-conversion, he's a tenacious bulldog. His personality is just, this is the focus, I will go, I will do it, nothing will get in my way, I don't care if people don't like me, here we go, I'm going to accomplish this. And people don't like him, which, which actually, you know, which ends up working with another part of his personality. He seems to be completely comfortable in conflict. Anybody here not comfortable in conflict? Can I see a show of hands? This is me as well. I'm with you. Conflict avoiders, anonymous. We can start a little club here, and pretty much all of you will be at it. But the Apostle Paul would not go to that meeting. And so we read and we find out about his conversion. And this is how he tells it later on when he's standing before some officials much later on, like maybe 15, 20 years after um, some of the earlier stories about him in the book of Acts. He's telling his story to someone named King Agrippa, and he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was... As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, that's Jesus' language, Saul, Saul, that was another version of his name, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, the Gentiles, to open the eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So I thought I'd just read that rather than tell the story myself. Just, just hear it from Paul's own words. So that's what happens with him. So his conversion is not how you would think. It's not through logical persuasion. Even though he was a, a, a well-known teacher and knew very well the, script, the Jewish scriptures, so you might think, oh, someone really smart like Peter will come and, and convince him and show him all the scriptures and, and teach him about how Jesus answered. No. He, it, no one logically persuaded him. He is, his direction is changed by sheer force. He, he, the one trying to snuff out the movement now immediately turns into the one on the cutting edge of helping its expansion, a mission to the Gentiles. And so what Paul begins to do is he, he um, there's some time in here where he's less active and he's, he goes out to the desert, he says, for three years in Arabia. And he's, so something's going on there that we don't really know all about in terms of reorienting his whole perspective. But eventually what he does is he begins to go out to different cities and just you know, start being this preacher and this leader for the movement he was trying to persecute. And he often goes straight to the synagogues. You'll read, as, if you're reading through the book of Acts, you'll see that he's, he, is a, he is called to go preach to the Gentiles, but he usually will go to a city and he'll go to the synagogue. And I guess that's just because that's his network of relationships. That's where he, he knows the language there. He knows he can maybe try to convince them through scripture study that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Um, and that went, had varying degrees of success. A lot of times he'd get kicked out or, or they'd take him to the local authorities. But eventually, pretty quickly, Paul was also bringing in, creating a mixed community. Some of the Jewish people he would convince, but he was also just, you know, somebody would put him in jail and, he'd, and suddenly he's baptizing the jailer and the jailer's whole family. You know, things like this are always happening with Paul. He's just bringing in these different people, and it's a mixed community that increasingly the communities he's helping start are more Gentile than they are Jewish. And so he develops um, opponents, and as he starts these community, then there's these people that he he talks about in different ways. Um, Sometimes he calls them the circumcision group. Basically, they're like more into hardline Jewish Christianity than what Paul has preached. So they're, they're, they're kind of like, yeah, we're with the Jesus movement, but it's sort of Jesus plus, you know. Like, you're only good if you have Jesus plus the Jewish markers, such as circumcision. So what he'll find, he'll go to a place and either all-out Jews will, will follow up and come to the city and try to kick him out, or, these, or he'll start a church and these Judaizers from more in the Christian circles will come in. And this is just happening over and over with Paul. And so as, you, as we're reading what, what um, Judy just read from Galatians, we have Paul writing to a church he started in a region where he started churches. And it probably got going pretty well in those places, but he's writing because what has come in is these, some of these opponents. And it's the Judaizer variety, the kind of people within the Christian movement, but they're saying Jesus plus these markers. And this is new to this 
Galatian crowd, these different churches he started there. Now Paul has to weigh in. He writes a letter. And it's clear that one of the things that's happened is that this crowd who comes in, these people who come in and the Judaizers are, are accusing Paul and opposing him and, and, and saying Jesus plus, they've said, well, Paul's out of line with the authorities in the Jerusalem church, the Jewish leaders. And so Paul's laying out in Galatians. It seems a little strange, but once you understand all that background, you understand what Paul is saying. Um, as they say, Paul's out of line with the human authorities in the Jesus movement. Paul's saying the gospel isn't contained under human authority. He says, he's saying my call and my training never came under the Jerusalem leaders. I was never one of their, you know, little interns that they eventually gave the stamp of approval and sent out. I got my call straight from Revelation from Jesus, and I didn't go to Jerusalem and ask them if they could give me a, you know, a, um, a, um, like a, a ministry license. <laughs> you know, I, I, just, I just did what God told me to do, what Jesus uh, gave me to do. And, and that's sort of his argument in this letter is that, you know, hey, I, let's not go the route of did I get approval you know, this is my call. I'm just doing what I'm called to do. And then he kind of adds on the, on the, in the end, and by the way, I did visit Jerusalem, um, and they were pretty happy about me becoming a Christian and doing this. You know, it's kind of like, well, I wasn't getting their approval, but when they heard about what I was doing, they praised God, you know. So it's like I'm not under their authority, but they think what I'm doing is fine. Um, and so as he, as he kind of explains all this, basically one of the things that we get is that just like you wouldn't blame Pita for his own brainwashing, Paul's argument is similar, similarly, like we, we kind of read what he's doing and we go, well, Paul's basically saying, God told me, God called me. If you have a problem, take it up with the guy upstairs. It's a disturbing disturbingly risky approach for Paul to take as he makes this argument. Um, he's saying, don't try to verify, um, you know, my connection with Jesus and my authority within the Jesus community through witnesses and a track record and the people I'm connected to. You can pretty much, the, the, what, what the verification is, is I had a vision, <laughs> you know. Which, I mean, that's kind of a risky thing to say. It's kind of like, which, you know, God told me. And therefore, that's why this is valid and this is legit. So Paul kind of puts him out there, himself out there in a risky position where you kind of say, well, did he see a vision or is he crazy? Today, there's a lot of distaste for Paul. It's one of the cultural moments that we live in is that we're affected by a movement that has basically said a kind of a thought process, and, and I understand it, um, it basically says, well, the Apostle Paul seems a little harsh, and we don't necessarily agree with some of the things in our culture today that he says. Um, he's not, doesn't seem very progressive. So, you know, but Jesus was a nice, loving guy and forgiving and all that. Certainly, Paul changed things. So, Paul's someone to not really trust. Paul, and in fact, the theory kind of goes, Paul really tweaked all of it and invented a whole kind of direction for Christianity that, um, where he kind of had an agenda with things and took it in a new direction. And that's not the real Christianity. 
So that's in the world. That's, you know, that's around us. You maybe have thought some of those things. Maybe you come in with some of those thoughts. And um, you've maybe run into it with friends. So one of the things to ask is, did Paul have anything to gain? I mean, if this is true, what was Paul getting from this? Did he have, is there any evidence that he has any kind of agenda? And I will say that um, one of the things, the research I've been looking at as we've been looking at all these characters from the book by Ben Witherington is really looking at what's our best historical evidence of all these early characters in the Christian church. So, so just a disclaimer that I follow the, the degree of thinking that the best historical evidence we have are some of these early go- documents that ended up in the New Testament. Now, some say, oh, those, you know, whatever. There's, but I think the evidence is there that these are the best historical things we have to look at to say what was actually happening. And so as we look at that, if we want to understand Paul and the best historical evidence, you say, well, what did he have to gain? Did he have something to gain? Well, how about status? Did he have status to gain in this switch that happened? He experiences a total reversal in status. He, he gets a target on his head by making this switch from being like chasing down Christians to being their, their lead preacher. His career is flushed down the toilet and any leverage or control or advancement that he might have. You know how we all, even if you deny it, we all love to have some little foothold or control in our lives. We love to say, this is where my life is going. This is who I know. This is my safety net. We love that. It's almost like we're built to have that, to to think about those things. Paul flushes it all down the toilet with this move. In emoji language, in terms of status, thumbs down. This movement for Paul, total thumbs down. Okay, well, did he have personal comfort to gain? Is that maybe something? Well, what we read about, what he tells about in the book of Acts is beatings, really severe beatings, multiple times, imprisonments for long periods of times, like, oh, oh, it'll just casually mention in the book of Acts, you know, they took him before this trial or whatever, they didn't know what to do with him, and so they put him in jail for two years. You know, (laughs) like, and you know, it's just like, whoa, and on and on and on. So did he have personal comfort? Was that part of it? No, he's someone who was beaten in prison and was running for his life often from the cities where he went. So did he have, was he maybe gaining some kind of financial leverage through this change in his life? Well, we read that he basically did kind of side hustles. He worked making tents in some places. He didn't, he earned a little bit of income as a preacher from those who believed, kind of like take, you know, putting money in the offering plate kind of a thing. But in some places he refused to do that. He just wanted to credit, have credibility in his message. So he worked his side hustles, tent making So it doesn't seem like he was getting rich. Occasionally he would invite congregations to support the poorer Christians in a region where there was famine and then he would would make sure there was a way for the money to get to the right places. But that's the extent of what we know about the financial situation of Paul. So was he maybe gaining some kind of power for himself? Was he consolidating power and gaining a lot of followers? And the big answer is no way. Because he would go and make these brief visits to these places. There'd be all kinds of controversy, but a few, there'd be a foothold and some people would start to gather in homes around the Jesus thing. And then he would usually go around and appoint elders and then kind of just step away pretty quickly and go on to the next town. But then in appointing these very untrained kind of 
quickly appointed elders, things would quickly become a mess, <laughs> especially with these opponents coming in and saying Paul's off base. And so basically, rather than building a following and consolidating power, he was just going around making huge headaches for himself. Because then he would hear about the haywire happening over here in this community and the dysfunction happening over here in this region. And then he would write these letters and then he would go back for visits and he was just managing dysfunction left and right. Did he gain a following? Well, initially all the Christians totally distrusted him and feared him. Eventually, most, almost all Jews hated him and were after him and setting plots for his life because he would go into the synagogues and steal people for the Jesus movement. He'd convince them Jesus rose from the dead. So that, that ticked them off. And then the Judaizing Christians didn't like him and thought he was off base. And often, they'd bring him before Roman authorities. Then he'd be in trouble with the local secular authorities. So he wasn't necessarily gaining popularity. That's the track record. That's the evidence you have for whether Paul had any kind of gain that he was after in doing the things he did and in writing the letters he wrote and in starting the little churches in these little places throughout the Roman Empire. People who often view Paul, um, people who view Paul today, I think, when they think of Paul in some kind of negative light, I, I think that a lot of what's going on is we're kind of inventing and creating Paul in the image of our own dysfunctional spiritual leaders that we've experienced in this world. Because the picture of Paul doesn't look anything like the historical picture. If you scratch underneath the surface, doesn't look anything like what people like to portray Paul as. And essentially, when I was reading something, somebody, somebody wrote about this saying like, um, basically, people like to, like to you know, say all these bad things about Paul, and they never seem to go to that place, you know, they never seem to look at that place where he wrote those words in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not self-seeking. You know, the famous marriage passage. But... You know, it's, like, it's, it's very selective in where this opinion of Paul comes from. We're really left with one decision, one basic essential choice, a fork in the road in how to view Paul. And it's the exact same fork in the road that you come to with Christianity and with Jesus himself. And that is crazy or from God. And that's it. That's it. Is Paul crazy? The way he says this, I'm telling you, I was walking on the road one day doing the logical thing, snuff out the dangerous Jewish Christian sect. And the next day I was commissioned to go preach that message and it was light, it was a message, it was a voice, and that's it. That's all I got to back up my mission in life. It's the same with Jesus in a sense, this guy who walks around and you can, you can pretend like he wasn't controversial but he lost followers over stopping and looking people in the eye and saying things like, I am the resurrection and the life. What? I am the bread of life. You have to eat me. What? I, he said to a Jewish crowd, I and the Father are one. 
stone him! You know? I mean, this is first century Jewish monotheism. Crazy? Insane? Or from God? Don't turn Jesus or Paul into some kind of nice, peaceful guru who reaffirms your progressive values in today's world. The takeaways that I would say from this, from looking at Paul, and I wish, you know, this is like, this is the last Sunday of looking at these different characters, and every single time, it was like a deep dive. I had always like, for every two books I I read into, I had two more that I couldn't have time to get into, feeling like this could be a whole year we do on these characters. So compressing the Apostle Paul into one, like, 20-minute or 25-minute message is ridiculous. But what take away, one of the takeaways is he's the right person at the right time to bridge this incredibly amazing gap between a small little Jewish Jesus movement to a global, multi-ethnic movement that we have today that includes all of you, whether you're Gentile, almost all of you, <laughs> or a Jew. Bridging the gap that was needed for the global church. Someone who was perfect for that, right person, wrong time, or right person, right time. He didn't mind being squashed by the conflict. He, he, he could authoritatively navigate the theology of the moment. He had the skills, experience, and leadership to plant Gentile churches. And then the other takeaway, I would say, and it kind of flows out of that, the right person, the right time, and it's, it's God who just kind of touches Paul. You know, it's like there's a switch and God just kind of flips it. This is not the Jerusalem church having a meeting and say, how do we bridge this to the Gentiles? That's important to remember. That the church is not dependent on the earthly authorities and structures for its future thriving. Paul is living proof of that. Whether you're thinking about today's church globally, whether you're thinking about the church in the U.S., or whether you're thinking about city life church. There will be seasons of drought. There will be seasons of harvest. And our thriving will not, listen carefully, our thriving will not be anchored and coming from denomination, denominational power structures, um, seminaries. It comes from God himself who can at any moment bridge a brand new, dramatic gap in the cultural moment in whatever way God desires to do that. Um, We enter into a season next week. Speaking of seasons, we enter into the season of Lent. Then although Paul can, or although God can just flip a switch and touch someone and just with a dramatic, like making someone hit a wall and go the opposite direction. God can do that. But it doesn't take away from our responsibility (laughs) as much as we can to open our ears, to, you know, pull the cotton out, the earbuds, the AirPods out, (laughs) and everything else, and just listen for God's voice. So in this season of Lent, I encourage you um, to, to do what you can. Take a step to open yourself up to hearing God's voice. And if you don't, 
it's okay too because God might put a wall in front of you that you bounce the opposite direction. He might do a Damascus Road thing to you. So if you don't do it, or if you do it, either way, God's going to have his way with you. Slow down and hear God's voice. Here's a few specific things. We have a retreat in March, March 27, 28, 29. Come to that. There's more information about it. You can talk to me. Another one would be pursuing uh, formally joining City Life Church and, and just kind of stepping into that more, I'm a known entity, I'm here, and I'm, I want to put myself in with this group. I want to follow Jesus here. So you can formally take that step. It's actually not very scary. There's several people who um, are doing that right now or just scheduled meetings and, ha- and are going to be recognized on Easter. I talked about the adult Sunday school in the back. Um, and then I would also encourage, uh, I would encourage you just to consider a practice or a prayer that during the season of Lent to open yourself up to God and hearing God's voice on a daily basis. Let's pray. Our God of mercy and grace, you are much bigger than we give you credit for, much more active than we often are willing to see. So we ask now that you would be active in our lives as we take whatever you have asked us to take from this message. May you be so gracious, holding us, caring for us, loving us into the future you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.